So as Randall said two weeks ago, we're doing the book of this semester, 1 Samuel, next semester, 2 Samuel. Uh, just to put this in context of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, it's 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings. Uh, they're only 1st and 2nd because that's how long the parchment was. So when you ran out of room, you started a new book. So the Jews know this, Samuel and Kings, as the story of the kings. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings. We always get confused because we go, it's 1st Samuel, and Samuel's in 1st Samuel. 2nd Samuel, no Samuel. Sorry, that's a spoiler. Those of you haven't read ahead. <laughs> Samuel does not make it out of 1st Samuel. Uh, by the time 2nd Samuel rolls around, Samuel's gone. But it's called Samuel in the English Bible because Samuel is the first of the big stories. And 1st and 2nd Samuel is three big stories. The stories are Samuel, of Saul, and of David. And so there's a story arc. You're introduced to the character when they're young, they grow, they fall away. They grow, they fall away. They grow, they fall away. Uh, so that's where so we're at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, and also to throw aboard the story arc, uh, obviously the book of Samuel was not written by Samuel. It was not completely written by Samuel. Because as I said in the spoiler, he goes away halfway through the book. So someone else had to finish the book. And then same thing for uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. So the easy way to remember these books is that they really are 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings. They're all about the kings of Israel. And, and also story, uh, the book before this is Judges. So the story arc is how at the beginning of the Bible, everyone's involved, Adam and Eve, and you start seeing this coning down and focus occurring on the people. So in Samuel, the focus is on the nation of Israel. 12, well, 13 tribes. Everyone thinks there's 12 tribes. That's one of those trick questions you get in the Bible. How many tribes were there? 13. Because Levi did not get any land. There are 12 landed tribes, and Levi was the third tribe. And then, as you focus on, as, the, as we go through the story of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings, by the time we get to the end, there's two tribes. So it's focusing down. And out of that tribe, one of the tribes left is Judah, of which the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come. So you see this constant focusing as we go through these stories. All right, let's go back to where we started. When the Jews got to the, well, I should have wrote the Israelites. They're not Jews until the Romans come around. Because the Jews is, the, is Latin for the tribe of Judah, uh, should be the Israelites at this point. So all the descendants of Israel, Jacob had changed his name to Israel. Uh, what were they commanded to do? As they came out of Egypt, uh, they, were, they were commanded to come into the new, the promised land and clean it out. And we'll talk about that in a second. But there were two things, people they weren't supposed to bother. Uh, when you come into the region of Moab, you come to the Ammonites. In the Old Testament, everyone's named Ammonites, 
Nikolites, uh, there are like 50 tribes named, and they all have different names, most of them start with A. Ammonites, don't harass and provoke them to war, because I will not give you possession of any land belonging to them. I have given that possession to the descendants of Lot. So that's where you see the story of Lot early in the Old Testament. You slide into, that's where his descendants were, went. And then he also says, uh, when you made your way around this hill country long enough, uh, turn north. Uh, that, that's that's pre-GPS. Go past the hill, turn left, go north. Uh, and then give these people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau. Uh, they will be very afraid of you. There were a lot of Israelites. There weren't very many uh, Moabites. Uh, do not provoke them to war, because I will not give you any of their land, or even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Sarah as his own. You are to pay them for the food and the water you drink. So he's saying these are protected people. Do not conquer them. As they're moving into the... And so what we're talking about here is Esau... Lot. So as the people came out of Israel, Egypt, they came this way, uh, and then they're going to enter, as you remember, the very first story is the story of Jericho. So they're going to enter here. Uh, if you, There are maps that have uh, topography, the mountains on it. The reason you go to Jericho is that there are mountains all the way to here and from here up. The only way to get into the Holy Land is through Jericho. Uh, and so that's why they enter that way. And so, again, this is the, for those of you who go past the mountains and go turn north, that's what he's saying. There's mountains here, go to the mountains, go north. Don't take their land, because that belongs to Esau. So that's kind of setting up. Remember, we're talking about three or four hundred years prior to this. And so what were they commanded to do? Uh, I will give you every place that you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert, that's all the way down south, to Lebanon, all the way up north. Uh, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the way to the east, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. That's a large section. In Samuel, they are not even close to taking that much land. Uh, and, that, and Samuel is 400 years after they entered the the promised land. But when Israel went to the world court, this was the boundary. Yes, that's what they want. That, that's, that was the boundary. Not what it is today. That was the boundary. They presented. Right. This was given to us by God. And so, uh, so modern... Let's see if I've got a map for you. Yep. So, this is what, when you look at that, this map here is what they currently have. This is about between 1,200 and 1,000. So this is what currently occurs in Samuel. This is what they were promised if they followed God. The desert, Lebanon, the Euphrates, the Mediterranean. This entire land was promised to them. If you match those two, they didn't go up in here at all at this point. 
They do by the time Psalm and David come around, David and Solomon come around, they end up picking up this. The Philistines are here. Uh, and even at the height of David's empire, the Philistines were still there. Uh, so they did not necessarily do what they said. And so, again, Joshua's good. This is the end of Joshua. You are old, and there are large areas of land to be taken over. So it's about 40 years after Joshua entered the, led the Israelites in. Uh, and here's the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and the Jeshurites. Uh, and basically he's, he's giving rivers as the boundaries because they don't have GPS. So when you go to the river, you know I'm at the edge of my territory. Uh, and so the most important part is, as for all the inhabitants of these regions, that is all the Syrians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. So the Israelites are not commanded to go do it themselves. They say, follow God, and God says, I will drive them out. And when you read some of the stories of the judges, that's what happens. Let's go back to Gideon. Remember, how many people did Gideon have? He paired it to 300. Paired 300, right? And there are thousands of people in front of them. They break, you know, I remember the story from you know, Bible class, right? They had a, a pot and a torch. And they go up and they break the torch and they blow the, blow the horn. And so all the guys down there in the fields get confused and they kill each other. And the, and the Israelites just walk in and pick up everything. That's what God's talking about in Joshua and judges, if you follow me, this is what happens. You don't have to do it. I'll do it for you. And Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Joshua knew his people. This is a recurring theme through Joshua for judges, through Samuel, through kings. This exact thing. Yes, we will serve the Lord. Uh, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. And the people said, no, we will serve the Lord. They're lying, by the way. <laughs> they want to serve the Lord. They don't. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is them saying, we want to serve the Lord. We will throw all our Baals away. We'll throw our Dagons away. We'll throw our Ashtoreth poles away. We will serve the Lord. And then they don't. So kind of like us. Kind of like yeah. us. A lot like us. And that's why the stories are there. <laughs> yes, we want to do good. But I want to do have fun. It's more fun. And so you get this constant <clears throat> serving the Lord, not serving the Lord, serving the Lord, not serving the Lord. Uh and then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. We are witnesses. And then Joshua says, throw away the foreign gods. The interesting part is this is 40 years after they, they spent 40 years in the, in the wilderness with God every day in front of them as a, with the tabernacle, fire at night, cloud in the morning. 40 years after they touched the land, Joshua's getting ready to die, they've already adopted all the foreign gods. And they said, oh, we'll throw them out. Uh, and we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. They do for a little bit, then they fall away. They do, they fall away, they do, they fall away. All right, pictures. So this is 
what it's supposed to look like, this is what it does look like. And even this, Hephanasigad, Reuben, are supposed to be on the other side of the river. As you remember the story, when they came up, they go, well, we really don't want to go to the, the promised land. We want to stay on this side of the river, and then Moses and Joshua do a deal with them. It says, you can stay over here as long as you send your troops over. But the original promise, they're supposed to be on this side. <clears throat> and they constantly get in trouble because they're surrounded by uh, non-godly people. All right, what year is it? To remind you what, Abraham is roughly 2,000. These are, these are close. These are not exact. Moses is about 1,500. David, who we're going to meet in a little bit, is about 1,000. Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes and takes the people away, we know are 605 and 587. Nebuchadnezzar likes Jerusalem so much he comes back for a second visit. No, the other way around. He came out the first time, took all the stuff and says, keep sending me money. And the Jews, as the Jews were wanting to do, said, and they forgot about it after about 20 years. Ah, he's forgot about us. We don't need to send stuff. He comes by the second time and destroys the city and takes everyone away. Uh, the interesting part is the Bronze Age Iron Age. Uh, transitions around 1200. So this, that's what's going on in the world around the Middle East is people have discovered iron and they're bringing it down. In the stories in Samuel, I'll give you two guesses who has iron and who doesn't. Philistines, they've got iron because they are they are a people, they're trading people, they're sailors. So they're trading all over. They have iron. The Jews, the Israelites who live in the hills, do not have iron. They've got bronze and copper. I'll give you a hint. Iron is, if you're a soldier, you want an iron sword, not a copper sword. Uh, iron is a lot better. And so that's part of the issue that's going around is that uh, the enemies of the Israelites are better armed. They've got chariots. They've got iron. So if you look at it from a worldly standpoint, the Israelites are scared all the time because they're living in the hills and the other guy's got better, better weapons. You know, what's so funny about that is later on, the Israelites want to sharpen their tools. They have to take it to the Philistines to get it sharpened right. because they don't have the technology. Yeah. Because when they're sharpened, they're sharpening tools that they have won in battle. And so they go, uh, uh, we can't really sharpen it. So they take, they take it down. The best part is the Philistines will take money to sharpen it, the sword that the Israelites are going to use against them in the next battle. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when you look, at, you look at some of that that's going on. So here's just kind of keep that in mind when we're talking about all this, about where we're at in history. All right, let's get into 1 Samuel. And we got one more here. All right. So as we, as we knew from the last week, the uh, Israelites treated the ark like it's magic. You know, we go in the first battle, we lose. So we're going to take our magic ark in front of us, and there's no way God's going to let this ark get captured because God lives on top of the ark between the cherubim. The Jews have a, or the Israelites have a very, very, very 
uh, contained view of God. God lives in the tabernacle, and he lives on the ark. And God's about to prove to them that that's not where God lives. So we know we have the battle. First battle, they lose. They bring the ark out. The Philistines capture the ark. And so the Philistines go, yeah, we've got the ark. Our God is stronger than the Hebrew God. Maybe. Probably not. All right. Now, the Philistines took the Ark of God, chapter 5, and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Uh, they took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and sat it by Dagon. Who was Dagon? Dagon is their god. Uh, he's the chief deity. And he actually is the father of Baal, Baal. We hear a lot about Baal later on. Dagon is his father. So he is, uh, uh, the Greek. Who's the, who's the chief Greek god? Uh, Zeus. Dagon's equivalent of Zeus. And so all the other gods come from Dagon. Uh, because they are sea people, he is half human, half fish. I've got a picture of him. Looks like that. So, fish on the bottom, man on the top. Uh, he's called the fish god because Dag in Hebrew means fish. And so, you see this picture. You have, you have heard Dagon or seen Dagon before. Two other times in the Old Testament, he shows up big. When are they? You've seen Dagon in the movie, 1950s. This would be a bell. Samson. When Samson is blind and captured at the end, they take him to the temple of Dagon. And so there are two, and so when he's pushing out, you know, we've all seen the 1950s, I forget who the, who the guy was with Samson. You know, he's pushing out, right, and the whole temple falls down and kills 2,000 people. That's the temple of Dagon in Ashdod. They're gonna, this is going to be an unlucky temple because that's several hundred years before this. They've rebuilt the temple. They bring the ark to the same temple to the same God. And you're going to see, you're going to see this God again later. What other story has to do with fish in the Old Testament? Jonah. Jonah is seen as a messenger from Dagon. Because if Dagon is the fish god, now when he starts talking, they realize he's a Jew. But that's one of the things why they think he is so powerful to the Ninevites, because Dagon was the main god of the Ninevites. And so you have a guy that was swallowed by a fish, spin up again three days later, and it's come to tell you what God says. You might pay attention to him if that's your main god. So this is Dagon. Uh... All right, so they put Dagon. All right, they set it by Dagon. So typical, what you would do when you conquered somebody, you would take all your uh, conquered gold, wealthy stuff, and you'd put it in front of the idol in the temple because you're dedicating that to the temple to the god. 
So they put it, they put the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon. When they rose in the early morning, Dagon had fallen on its face before the Ark. So you got, I mean, you can tell Dagon's not a small, would not have been a small idol. Because this is the same place I said that there were 2,000 people killed when Samson brought down the temple. This is a large temple. They come in the next morning, Dagon's laying face down in front of the ark. And I'm sure they're going like, well, you know, earthquake, you know, that stuff happens. Uh, <laughs> so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. The next morning, day two, they show up. And Dagon had fallen on his face before the Ark of the Hands. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left for him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon or all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Uh, the symbolism here uh, to the Hebrews is incredibly strong because typically what you would do is... Uh, you would, when you defeated people, you would cut off their heads, you would cut off their hands, etc., and you would bring them to the temple. And so the gifts, there were gifts from you to your gods for allowing you to, to win in victory were the heads or the hands. So the picture to the Hebrews is that in front of the Ark of the Covenant, Dagon has fallen off, his head has fallen off, his hands have fallen off, and they're sitting there in front of the Ark. Every one of the Philistines knows, knows what that means. The Hebrew God is greater than our God. Because twice, in two days, our idol is, is bowed to him, and now his head has come off, and his hands have come off. Just like who the victors, what the victors do. The victors cut the head and the hands off. So, did the Jews do that also? <laughs> David did the Goliath. David is Goliath. I mean, there, there are times where that occurs. Uh, you see it, Samson does it. Uh, that, that's not a norm for the Jews. It's a norm for everybody else. But it's a symbol that when that occurs, you go, I know what, I know what this means. Uh, this introduces a recurring theme that the Lord's hands are helping the Jews. This comes up over and over and over again for the rest of the Old Testament. That's the Lord's hands that help you. Uh, and so that that's where we're at, if I get this, there we go. And so, and also they consider the heads and the hands holy. So it's laying on the threshold of the temple so they can't go back in the temple because the heads and the hands are sitting there. <clears throat> and so basically that temple and it's a bad luck temple anyway. Samson's already destroyed it once. And now the Ark of the Covenant has destroyed the, the idol again. So they, they literally say, and you cannot tread on the threshold of Dagon, Aegon, and Ashdod to this day. So whenever they were writing this, the temple was still empty. So Dagon was still there. They couldn't move him because he's their god. Uh, and the temple was empty. Now the hand, here comes that symbology again. The hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. He ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod's territories. Let's find this little picture here. So this is what we're talking about. Uh, five major cities, one, two, three, four, five. 
Shiloh is where the tabernacle is. The thought is after this battle that the Philistines destroyed the tabernacle. Because you, we'll see here in a minute, they don't take the ark back to the tabernacle, they put it elsewhere. Uh, and so the Hebrews are very worried that the Philistines are about to overrun them. Because they've taken, they've taken the ark, they've lost two straight battles. So we're in Ashdod, the uh, tumors break out. Understand Hebrew is written uh, with a very limited vocabulary. It probably has 2,000 words of vocabulary. It is not a medic, modern medical journal. So when they say tumor is broken out, it's hard to determine exactly what's going on at that time. There are lots of theories. My, per, my favorite theory is these are hemorrhoids. <laughs> I, don't think they are. I don't think they are. I actually had a, a teacher tell me that that's his interpretation of tumor, is hemorrhoids. It gets funnier after that when they make them into Yes. Yeah. I know, they make them bad. So I, I, I love the comic relief element of this section uh, of the story. Uh, but, but, but I do have a question. Yeah. Yes. So at, at the beginning of Chapter 5, Samuel's kind of taking charge of everything, and they go to war against the Philistines. Well, Samuel's not, he's not quite taking charge. He's not yet. quite, but, yes. but he's, yes. but, but, but he's, he's, he's growing. Yeah. Yes. And, and so they're listening to him, and then they all go to war against the Philistines. Is this the first time that they're going to war as opposed to letting God take care of stuff in front of them? It's, it's hard to tell, because through the book of Judges, there's this constant waxing and waning right. of, we can handle this. We get defeated. We need to go pray to God. God tells us to do this. Then we win. Yeah. That's the entire book of Judges. 400 years, the book of Judges is, we're, we're on top. We're the man. No, we're not. We get defeated. Oh, God's going to help us. Now we're back on top. Yeah. So you see this constant cycling. Because if you look at the cycle here, what's going on is that Israel is going, hey, God's our magic Santa Claus. Yes. And God's like, I'm not your magic Santa Claus. And so, and God invades the Philistines. Yes. And goes from city to city to city as they try to figure out what the heck to do with this thing that's knocking over idols and causing hemorrhoids and rats and everything. <laughs> and I mean and, and so God pretty much takes out the Philistines with a chest. Again, the hand of God. Yeah. That that's that theme of the hand of God is going like I do not need the yeah. Jews but, to do this. Yeah, but you've got a whole active invasion because he goes through the whole land doing yes. this. And so as, as you look at, as you go through chapter 5, uh, there's tumors. And the Ashton says, hmm, the leaders, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us because his hand is severe against us and on Dagon our God. So what do we do? It's, you know, it's the white elephant Christmas gift, right? You go, hey, uh, hey, uh, hey, Gath, we got a present for you. And so they sent it to another art major city. Same thing happens. Art shows up. All of a sudden, all these tumors and rats, etc., show up. People start dying. Uh, and And after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city in very great confusion. He smote men in the city, both old and young, so that tumors broke out on them. 
if the old and young is very important because if it's old, you go, they're just old. You know, you got to die sometime. Young is saying, oh, it's the hand of God because young people don't get sick. Uh, the description of this disease actually uh, was reading about it. Uh, you're talking about rats and tumors. Uh, a lot of guys think it's a demonic plague, uh, which would be one of the first instances in recorded history of the demonic plague, uh, going all the way, taking all the way back to like first year med school. Uh, bubonic plague lives on rats, jumps on people when the rats start dying. Uh, Yersinia pestis is the bacteria, if you really want to know, treatable by tetracycline. That's freebie. That will not be on test. But they don't have tetracycline in the uh, Philistines area. Uh, so people start dying, and what happens with bubonic plague is you get infected and your lymph nodes swell up. Uh, in the Middle English, called buboes, it's bubonic plague, which are tumors. And the tumors show up in your armpits and your groin, everywhere. And then they get infected and you die. Not everybody dies, but a lot of people die. And you see lots of rats associated with that. The reason the, rat, the rats die, and then the plague jumps off the rats and eat them. Uh, and so what happens, they see dead rats everywhere, and you see uh, tumors. So that's, that's, a lot of guys I've read about this were thinking that's probably what this, that's the most accurate description of things we know about is the bubonic plague. Weren't they spread by fleas? Well, the, the fleas, what happens is the rats die, the fleas bite the rats and, get, and get, get the bacteria in the blood. Then the rats die, so they have, the fleas got to go somewhere else, so they jump on people. And then they bite the people and give them the bubonic plague. So, yeah, it's, it's a dance of rats, fleas, and people. It's hard to make them fleas. Yes. And uh, no flea collars in those days, and they didn't have the rat trap. Uh, and so uh, then they go, well, so this gap, let's bring it to Ekron. And so they take it to a third city. Same exact thing happens. And then the best part is the religious people of the Philistines are better believers in God than the Israelites are. Because they go, wow, their God is stronger than our God. He's knocked out three of our major cities. And all, we, all he had to do was show up in his ark. So we need to get rid of this. And so they go to them and say, how do we get rid of it? Uh, and they said, well, so in those days, you, if you had a problem, you would make a gift that looked like your problem. So he says, make five, there's five major cities, so make five golden tumors either tumors or hemorrhoids, you, you, you pick, I like hemorrhoids, it's a much better picture. Uh, and then five golden rats. Put them with the ark uh, and send it back to them. Uh, send the ark of God to Israel, let it return to its own place so it will not kill us and our people. Uh, and those who did not die were spent with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Uh, and now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So in seven months, God has overthrown three of the major cities of the Philistines. And so they called they call priests and said, how do we send it back? Uh, and they said, yeah, if you send the ark back to the God of Israel, don't send it empty. 
send them a guilt offering. Say, oops, we're sorry. Which is very typical, and you'll see it. In the, it's also in the, uh, in the Jewish literature. Guilt offerings is a very common thing. If you, if you know you've done something wrong, you have to go give a guilt offering. And so the Philistines said, we need, you need to send guilt offerings back. And that's where it came up, you know, the five golden mice and the five golden tumors. Uh, and give your likenesses, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Basically saying, God of Israel is greater than Dagon. Which is a, a huge thing to say. Uh, and then, just to show you how the story of how the Israelites left Egypt, remember this is 400 years after they came by, the Philistines still remember the story, because they said, uh, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and depart him? So what the Philistines are saying, hey, remember 400 years ago when, they, when the, the Israelites showed up here? The, the world power was, uh, at that point, was uh, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And with the, with the Jews, the Israelites doing nothing, God sends the ten plagues on them. And if they leave and they destroy, and remember it's that cross in the Red Sea, they destroy the Egyptian army. Everybody remembers that story. This was 400 years later. What do you remember from 400 years ago? United States, 1600. What's happening? Mm, I don't know. It's not a lot. 1619, we know what we say, though. I remember that. 1619, first slaves, first women, first men, and the Philistines. That's all I remember from early American history, pre-1600, pre-1700. Uh, the, I mean, so think about that. The Philistines, who are not, they were not involved in the Egyptian-Israelite issue, they remember the story of how the plagues came on, and the, so the priests are going, this is just like if we keep this here, this is only one play. The Egyptians got ten. So they said, we should really get rid of this. Because we don't want to, we don't want to go through the nine. This first one's really bad. We don't want to go through the nine more. Because they know the story. And again, the uh, Philistines are better believers than the uh, Israelites are at this time. And then they said, so five golden mice, five golden tumors or hemorrhoids. Uh, so, and the question is, how do we know that this is truly the hand of God in this? Uh, and they actually do a really good little test. Take a new cart that nothing's ever ridden on. Take milch cows, which have never been on a yoke, which means they're not trained to pull, and they have calves. Take the calves home away from them. Put the ark of the, of the Lord and place it on a cart. Put the articles that you return to him as a guilt offering in a box and send it away. And watch. If it goes by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has done this as great evil. If not, then you, we will know it's not by his hand that struck us. It was just by chance. So they did so. They took the milch cows, pitched them up in the cart, left the calves at home. Uh, anyone here farmers that uh, raise cattle. Do mama cows leave their calves? 
No. Zero. No. They will turn around and walk right back. Uh, and they put it, and they, they went along the highway, lowing as they went, calling to the calves. They did not turn aside to the left or the right. And the lords of the Philistines followed into the border. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat, were reaping their wheat harvest, so it's in the spring. Uh, they raised their eyes and they saw the ark. So it came to the field of Joshua, and there was a large stone. They offered, created an offering, killed the cows, offered the cows, used the wood as the burn, the wood to burn it. I always like to ask the question, how did they know it was the ark? Well, I think they could see the ark. It's it's solid gold. Yes, it's solid gold, it's got cherubim, it's got rain. I think, just think about it, you're, you're, you're in the field, you're cutting down, because you're cutting by hand, right? Hand side. You look up, you hear the cows coming, and there is a solid gold box with cherubim, the center of all your worship. It's just coming up the road by itself, no one leading it, with two cows. And so they ran and grabbed it, and they, they sacrificed, and... Uh, when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. So the Philistines know the hand of the Lord caused all this. Is that on your map? Yeah. Ekron is right there. There's Ekron. You should follow the arrow. There's that shit right here. So here's Bethlehem. Here, Jabez is actually where Jerusalem ends up. So we're talking, I don't know, 10 miles maybe. Not very far. Shiloh is where the tabernacle used to be. But they took it down here and went to everywhere. Ashdod, Gath, Ekron. And so the closest city is following this little river up is Beshemesh. And the topography of all of Israel is not like what you can see because we have trees. And you could be on a on a hill, on a plateau even, and see what's coming from down the valley going up to Beshemesh. You can see it for a long way. So the Philistines are sitting here in Philistine territory. They're watching the thing. Cattle, don't, they don't turn left. They don't turn right. They just go. They get to Beth Shemesh. Uh, the guys sacrifice the cattle. Uh, and they now have the, the five golden tumors. We don't know, by the way, what happens to the tumors and the mice. That's the last we hear about it. Uh, they didn't put them in the ark. They did not go in the ark. Yes. <laughs> Well, they might have they might have tried, but we're going to find out what happens when you look at the ark here in about two seconds. Uh, and so, uh, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Meshemite. So, at the right of this book, that stone was still there. Said, this is where the, the ark was recovered. Hey, I want to say something about right. that too. That, that in Hebrew, that's called Masaboah, and there are rocks like that all over Israel. Like when they went to pass, the children of Israel uh, came out of Jericho. When they stepped in the water, it says Joshua put up stones. Amasabah, it doesn't call it Amasabah, but that's what it is. Amasabah. And what went on? I mean, there's rocks all over Israel that say, this is what happened. This is what happened. And we're we're going to get to Ebenezer here next chapter. Next yeah. week. Uh, which is where I, where I place my Ebenezer for all of you who's ever sang the song and no idea what it's about. We're going to talk about it next week. Uh, and so, 
Beshad, Behaviar. And then, just to show God is holy, you still have to obey the law. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Uh, he struck down all the people, 50,070. Whose who's translation says 70? Yeah, probably the correct translation. The uh, Hebrew does not have does not have numbers. Letters stand in for numbers. So understand 2,000-year-old Hebrew, 1,000-year-old Hebrew. By the time the New Testament gets here, they translate everything into Greek. Greek has numbers, and so they try to put numbers on things. And to also show you the complication, Hebrew reads from right to left. Numbers, there's a great argument among scholars whether when you get to numbers in Hebrew, do you read them from right to left or left to right? Uh, and so those are totally different numbers depending on which direction you read them. Uh, and so most of the people I read on this said they think the number is 70. Because that's a very specific number. 50,070. Uh, so they think the number is 70. And that in some of the copy of the translation that... And also, remember Hebrew has no capitalization, has no punctuation, it doesn't have spaces. It's no meant... No vowel. It's meant to be read out loud and memorized and read. And so we, when we read it, we want a book that's exact. Exactly how many guys did he kill that day? So the thought is that the number is 70, uh, and that the 50,070 is if you read, if you put more consonants next to it, it changes the number. But you don't know whether those consonants belong to the number or they belong to the next word. So it's oh, some are saying seventy instead of fifty. That's a mind. Yes. NASB says fifty thousand seventy. Yes, I got. That's I'm reading the NASB. It says fifty thousand seventy. But Other the NASB just says seventy. We'll say seventy. Plain seventy. Oh. Yeah, and so that's, that's it has to do with translating from. Think about think about it. You're talking. Uh, so original, like I said, this is a thousand. Let's go a thousand years before this when Hebrew was starting to be written by Abraham. Think of Old English. How many of you read Beowulf in the original Old English? Most of uh, Yeah, most of Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. I mean, how, many, how much do you, and those are not a thousand years before this. I mean, Canterbury Tales are what, 1400s, 1500s? So, you know, it's only 600 years. Think how much English has changed in that period of time. And the same thing, go back to, think how much the Hebrew has changed as you interact with people, you pick up words. Uh, let's see, Steve, Steve Sherman's not in here. I'm laughing. I went to a, a, uh, a uh, hardware store in Guatemala to pick something at the clinic down there. I needed a light switch. I don't speak very good Spanish. Uh, I tried my best to say light switch. And they're looking at me like, what? <laughs> and then they start picking stuff up. And they pick up a light switch. I said, that. He goes, oh, that's an off. On off, because that's what it says on it, right? And so in Guatemala, electric switches and off. So you go to the hardware store, I need three on offs. I was trying to say, you know, electric light switch in Spanish, and they're looking at me like, I know what you're talking about. You import stuff into your language. I was, this last week we were driving Malawi, Fred, you and I were driving Malawians around. I, I was dying, the conversation was in Chea, was in the back, 
talking about how to get your iPhone on the Wi-Fi at the hotel. <laughs> and so in Jawa, the word for iPhone is iPhone. <laughs> Wi-Fi is Wi-Fi. So you, they would be speaking Jawa, then they'd say iPhone, blah, 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 Wi-Fi, blah, blah, Bluetooth. <laughs> and so they recorded those words in Jawa. So same thing happens in Hebrew, is that as you touch things, you incorporate concepts and words. Uh, and so that's why sometimes we, we want to read this like it's a scientific document. It is not, it's a scientific document, but from a very small vocabulary language 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. So you have to understand that you got to read the story and understand what the principles are behind the story. And so the men opened, look, so we'll, we'll say they killed 70 of them. If they killed 50,070, that's the entire village. And, and we know that there's still men left because they go, let's just stand before the Lord who was holding God. And who shall I go up? And so they sent messages to the hammers of uh, Jared Jam saying, the Philistines have come back with the ark. Come down and pick it up. <laughs> so they didn't want it either. They, uh, it's, it destroyed the Philistine cities. It comes with their city. It kills some amount of men who looked in it. And, there's, and so they send the message out. Come down and pick it up. And if you flip, remember the chapters are not put in. Samuel did not put the chapter of things in here. Uh, because the first part of chapter 7 is, in fact, the end of the story. And the men of uh, Kerath Jerem came down and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So basically, said, your new job is you're the ark keeper. Uh, and it remained there for 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. End of the story. So next week we'll start First Samuel 7, chapter 3, because that's when the story takes off. And so now we've got, we had the ark, we lost the ark, we got the ark back, and now we've, we've sent it elsewhere because it, it, we did poorly in our city, and now Samuel's about to rise to his main problem. The most prominent he's going to be in this whole book. We'll see you all next week.